unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grand Zamasha. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. This is our very first live show. I hope that we don't make a total hash out of it. I'm joined today by our news roundup regulars, Sadhanand Dume of the American Enterprise Institute and the Wall Street Journal. Sadhanand, thanks for coming on the show. Good to be here. And of course, Thunbi Madan of the Brookings Institution, author of the best-selling new book, Fateful Triangle. Thunbi, good to have you on. Good to be on, Milan. I'm glad we can do this on video and you don't have to bury yourself under a duvet. Um, I, I feel like we have to welcome a third participant to our little group today, Sadhanan's beard, which I think is its own character in this show today. Um, I think it would be a much bigger issue if I didn't have a beard. I mean, I don't know. I mean, everyone has a beard. This is like <laughs> coronavirus time. This is your corona beard. Um, we are going to cover three topics today. We're going to start by discussing the COVID situation in India, the latest on the numbers, the virus, the easing of the lockdown. Uh, next, we're going to discuss the Modi government's economic response to the pandemic. It was revealed last week through a series of five rather lengthy, I think you could say, press conferences called by the finance minister, Nirmala Sitharaman. Topic three is going to be the foreign policy fallout uh, of this COVID crisis, specifically the future of India-China relations. And we're going to be taking audience questions through it all. Uh, on YouTube, you can see on the right-hand side, there's a little chat box. You can jot down your questions. We'll take them as they come uh, as the topic. Or you can send questions on Twitter to any of us. Just use the hashtag GrantThamashaLive. If you are particularly old school like me, you can still send an email. Uh, send an email to southasia at ceip.org. That's southasia at ceip.org. We'll try to answer questions in real time, but if you have any questions at the end, uh, be, once we're all done with our topics, uh, we'll save a little time to get to those. Uh, let me start with the COVID situation in India. Uh, when we last spoke, guys, I think it was about a month ago, India had just around 18,000 confirmed COVID cases. As we speak today, May 19th, India's caseload has officially crossed 100,000. The growth rate uh, of active cases are, is around 3% or so, which means that total cases are doubling uh, roughly every, every 23, 24 days. Uh, Savannah, let me start with you. You know, when we last spoke, India looked as if it may have, might have sort of dodged this COVID bullet, you know, at least compared to countries like our own, the United States, the United Kingdom, Italy, Brazil. Has the situation materially changed from a month ago? I think clearly the answer to that is yes. Uh, it is, uh, you know, there were many hopes a month ago or a bit longer ago that, you know, something about India, maybe it was a combination of the warm weather, uh, the fact that many people were inoculated with the BCG vaccine, uh, the fact that India has a much younger population than uh, many of the countries in the West that have been hit, that somehow, and the fact that it had, uh, instituted a, a fairly severe, in fact, by some measures, the most severe lockdown in the world uh, quite early on at a point where it had barely about 500 cases. Uh, people thought that maybe a combination of those things uh, would have allowed India to dodge this bullet uh, in the way that some other countries, uh, in fact, have, including you know, Australia, New Zealand, Vietnam, uh, Taiwan, and a few others. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. And uh, government planners who were in charge of this, who would certainly not be pleased looking at the figures today to see where India is, uh, you know, on, on, on May, 9, uh, May 19th, uh, compared to where it was or where it expected to be when the lockdown was announced uh, on, on May 25th. So you have the cases that have crossed 100,000. Uh, everybody knows that that is just a small fraction of the actual number of cases. And then beyond that, you have the fact that in many places, including Mumbai, which is India's financial capital, uh, the situation uh, does not seem to be uh, improving. So I think we're still away, uh, a ways away from the peak in, in, in places like Mumbai. So I think the next few weeks uh, and possibly the next few months are going to be, uh, unfortunately, uh, quite grim. So, you know, Thunby, India's case burden is now on the verge of, of cracking the global top 10. It's surpassed China. It's nipping at the heels of Iran, although there's been a kind of relapse in Iran as well. Um, and this is after India, uh, by all accounts, has instituted one of the most stringent lockdowns we've seen really anywhere in the world. You know, 
Does the government appear to be prepared to handle this new large influx of cases? So I think, I mean, we'll find out. I think it's too early to say um, because there are a few things that aren't evident right now. And if you look back at the lockdown, it seemed to have multiple purposes. And I think on the metrics that had been one people were generally considering, the outcome has been mixed of whether or not the lockdown served those purposes. So if the one idea was that it would kind of slow the pace of growth of the number of cases, and it, it does seem that India's rate of growth of cases is, as you kind of alluded to in the beginning, is still lower than a number of other places at similar stages. You're also seeing less uh, kind of uh, a fewer number of cases that have been proven to be fatal. And again, multiple explanations. There isn't an, a good explanation for that yet. But so that you could say, you know, the lockdown did serve its purpose in that sense. Having said that, the lockdown, you know, some had even been talking about potentially trying to, re, uh, you know, reverse the trend, reduce the number of con uh, cases, contain it to certain areas. And that hasn't proven to be the case. I mean, we've seen that, um, you know, in the last couple of days, we've seen kind of the maximum number of daily cases in India. Again, that could be because they're testing more. Uh, but it's clear that at, in many states, kind of the we haven't seen it hit the peak. Um, in fact, you've seen the spread to more districts uh, than, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of the, the at the end of March. Uh, again, could be a result of more testing in, in kind of newer districts. But uh, regardless, kind of uh, that hasn't been uh, that, you know, the lockdown hasn't uh, managed to achieve that containment purpose. I think the other thing, you know, we'd heard the government say is the lockdown was meant to uh, buy time to prepare kind of healthcare infrastructure, acquire equipment. And clearly, the central and state governments have worked on that to different degrees. But you, know, you have seen kind of an increase in hospital capacity, uh, testing capacity, quarantine facilities, importing uh, and producing kind of more PPE, etc. Uh, but we, what we won't know uh, is is it is all this sufficient until we you know know what the scale of the spread will eventually be. And I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't like to play one on TV. But what most epidemiologists have said for a while is given where when India started um, and its rate of growth, that they did expect India's peak not to come till June and perhaps later in the summer. So I think we have to wait and watch, uh, as Sadhanand as well said. But I think the other thing to, couple of things to watch is what is the impact in terms of what it, would the potential burden be of cases on the healthcare system? What's going to be the impact of kind of both the easing um, of the lockdown. Uh, this is the first time we're really going to see people out and about in some kind of big quantity. And second, the impact of all these migrants um, returning uh, to their uh, their hometowns, their villages. Uh, is, are we going to see this, uh, re, you know, lead to a greater spread and an increase in numbers? So let me actually stay on this migrant question, because the issue of India's treatment, some would call it mistreatment, of internal migrants continues to receive a lot of media attention, both in India as well as in the United States elsewhere. You know, each day it seems like we're greeted with these horrible scenes, right? Migrants walking hundreds of miles back home, dying on the roadside, suffering without food, water, shelter, clothing. Uh, Barkat Dutt, the television journalist, had this to say in a column over the weekend, and I want to quote, there is no nuanced way to say this. India is in the grip of a humanitarian crisis and continuing the coronavirus disease sparked national lockdown will be an unmitigated disaster. Sadanand, is Barkha right? Do you think that the cure, which is the lockdown, is turning out to be worse than the disease? Well, you know, I think you know, you're, you're right that the migrant crisis has really become the, you know, emblematic of uh, India's fight against corona. Uh, there's a large number of people. The estimates vary. I've seen estimates going from 50, 40 million people to, to, to 60 million. And it seems that uh, the government did not uh, sufficiently take this into account when the lockdown was ordered rather suddenly with four hours of notice. And so we've seen these scenes. Barely a day, day goes by. Just today, I was, uh, you know, we were, we've seen uh, large numbers of people gathering in Bandra railway station in Mumbai because they had heard rumors that there were trains that were going to be taking them back to, to Bihar. And I think it's a problem on two dimensions. I mean, the first and the most obvious aspect of this uh, is the fact that this is a human tragedy. And uh, we see people who have really been, you know, pushed to the edge of existence uh, by this uh, by this crisis. Uh, but there's also a public health element. 
now you have many of these people who have been locked down in hotspots in places like Mumbai, who are now streaming back to their villages in the Hindi heartland. So you've got a sort of double whammy. You have the the human tragedy, you have the the cost that people have borne, and now you have also the public health dimensions, which I think are going to become, uh, unfortunately, are going to become clearer in the weeks and months ahead. In terms of sort of the call to end the lockdown, uh, I think one thing is clear that uh, it's simply not sustainable in its current form. And, uh, you know, to give the government credit, they have been loosening it. Uh, I think people can, you know, debate about whether they've loosened it enough or they've loosened it too fast because there's obviously going to be, obviously there's going to be a trade-off between public health and economics, just as there's a trade-off in any country, uh, including here in the United States. But one thing I think is, is, is absolutely clear is that the room that India has for an extended lockdown is much less than the room that you have in a wealthy country such as the United States, uh, because there are many, many people whose lives are on the margin, many, many people who simply do not have uh, the luxury of, uh, not, uh, of not being able to go to work. Uh, there's the fact that there are many other diseases and, and that are endemic, including uh, tuberculosis and, and what happens to the treatment of those other diseases while, while with, with this kind of complete focus on the coronavirus. And so the cost, if you look at the sort of, you know, if you look at the at, at the cost side of the ledger, uh, I think that, that the costs uh, being imposed on the Indian populace are unbearable. And one way or the other, the lockdown it's already being eased, and at some point, it's going to have to be eased further. So, Thunby, let me ask you a question which someone had posed on Twitter actually before we started, which is uh, it's fine and well to basically indict the government for uh, its failure on this point. But what were the things that they could have done, perhaps? You know, obviously, it's hindsight is twenty twenty. What are the things they could have done perhaps to ease this burden? So if you kind of rewind the clock, you know, are there things you think that they could have done better? So Don had mentioned, for instance, only announcing that the lock, you know, given a four hours notice before the lockdown began. For, was that, for instance, a mistake? What, what, what are the things you know, going back? I mean, you're always a kind of savvy uh, critic of, of, of public diplomacy, public relations. What do you think went wrong? I think, you know, um, these it's obviously an unprecedented situation, but there are certain things that, you know, I think for, for one, trying to kind of anticipate, I think, you know, a few people have pointed out that, look, these are millions, tens of millions of migrants and they are invisible. So I think, you know, it's and it's not just the government that has failed to see them. It is business to some extent who they kind of provide the labor for, um, but also for people um, around the public um, who, you know, are seeing this now, are seeing these images, are shocked. Uh, But, you know, this is not, somebody once said, you know, there's nothing known as an unintended consequence. It's an unanticipated consequence. So laying that aside, okay, should have anticipated it, these, you know, millions of people and what's going to happen. If you had anticipated it, if there had been a little bit more time, some of the things you could have done, And again, you know, these are all easier in hindsight. So one has to kind of acknowledge that. But, you know, for a a government to work with both states, uh, and this would have required not just the central government, but the state government as well, to work with kind of businesses, with households, et cetera, to try to, you know, first figure out what do you want them to do? Do you want them to stay in place or do you want them to go back home? If the idea was you know, we need, we want them to stay in place, then you have to ensure that you, uh, you know, figure out a way for that for accommodation, uh, for, you know, like resources in terms of, so essentially the basics, food, uh, you know, shelter. Um, and so I think that the only way to have uh, uh, sorted that problem out would have been to kind of it give them the incentive to stay uh, in place. If, if the idea had been, you know, let them go back home, this is a time of year, especially, you know, in agricultural, uh, migrants who come from agricultural areas, they tend to go back uh, anyway, you know, figure out like a way to get them home uh, safely. But I, th- I think so some of this is, you know, policy planning issue in terms of not anticipating. Um, some of it is, yes, it's an unprecedented. Some of it is, you know, the lack of time. But I think there was also something to be said for 
you know, better coordination at the beginning between various stakeholder stakeholders. Again, I think that's connected to the time uh, to the time issue. Uh, but again, these things are all easy to say in hindsight. Uh, but this is not. I don't. I also don't buy the line that you know nothing could have been done, and um, you know these things that this is just uh, this you know it was just it was just not going to be possible to have dealt with this. Well, I want to take a stab at that too, and uh, you know, with the with the sort of usual caveat about this being very difficult and hindsight being 2020 and all of that. Um, I interviewed a, a kind of prominent virologist uh, fairly early on in this. Um, and the point that he raised, and I'll just sort of leave, put it put it out there, was that, look, uh, a, a few things would have helped enormously. Uh, first of all, India, basically, it, it stopped flights from China, but it turned out that a lot of the infection came in through Europe. You had this band of Italian tourists who were tested, I think, early early in March. And his basic point was uh, uh, the airport screening was extremely weak and lax and haphazard. And his essential point was that uh, India lost the month of February. It did not take this. Uh, the first cases showed up in Caroline early in at the end of January. Caroline, in fact, did a very good job of 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 containing that. And then India sort of lulled itself into a false sense of complacency. You remember those, you know, India was kind of, you know, sending planes around the world to help Serbia and all kinds of things. And there was a sort of general sense that like, well, you know, that that, that India had dodged the bullet and look, you know, the, these other places are suffering. And February was lost. And then pressure began to build and you had public health experts and epidemiologists you know, banding some, you know, pretty uh, large numbers. And I think the government finally towards the end of March kind of hit the panic button and then and then decided to impose this uh, extremely harsh lockdown at, at a four hours notice. And I think when any, you know, when we when we do a sort of proper postmortem of this, it's still uh, probably early. Uh, I think one of the things to pay attention to is uh, what exactly was India uh, doing about this in February? So we have a question from YouTube from Atri, uh, and this is for whoever wants to take it. Uh, the question is the following. Will the mass repatriation of Indian immigrants from the Gulf countries have any effects in terms of foreign policy on India-Gulf relations? Either of you like to weigh in on that? Sure, I can. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there, there, there are a couple of different aspects of this. Um, I think, you know, this is the fundamentals for why the in, in the Gulf has been important for India you know, it's the classic thing, you know, jobs um, for kind of Indian uh, Indian workers, but also kind of a source of oil and gas. Um, so it's it, both these aspects um, uh, have become uh, come to the fore in this uh, for a couple of different reasons. So one is kind of the oil prices, um, you know, tanking. This affects uh, these countries, uh, these countries in the Gulf. Um, you know, their revenue, um, but it also affects their kind of desire uh, to kind of go local, so to speak, uh, uh, or go vocal for local in their kind of way, which is more jobs for their um, uh, more jobs for their own people, but less ability to hire. So, you know, if you're, you know, if the construction industry is affected in the Gulf, this is going to affect how many workers um, are needed. It also affects India now in a different way, which is that um, and this could play either way, one of two ways and, and kind of opposite, opposite direction. Um, in recent years, one of the things the government, Indian government has been doing is saying to these, uh, uh, you know, whether it's the Saudis, whether it's the Emiratis, which is, you know, come invest in India. Uh, you've been looking to diversify from oil and gas. Um, you want different sources of revenue, diversify sources, come invest in India and in infrastructure that could be energy infrastructure. So the question is, you know, does um, this this kind of hit that these uh, governments, economies and, uh, you know, oil revenues and gas revenues going to take, does it mean that they'll say, okay, we're looking for more investment in India? Uh, but it also, the flip side also means kind of the opposite. Their revenues have dropped, so they might have less, uh, uh, less to spend. Um, but I think there's a broader issue in terms of what happens in the future. Because, you know, one can't assume that all these uh, migrants kind of going back to India 
that they will necessarily have jobs on the other side uh, of this once people it could happen but if oil prices and gas prices continue to stay kind of relatively low i think you'll see pressure on these countries in the gulf and so that is going to mean that these uh, you know the, the the returnees so to speak are going to need to find more people for india to create jobs for and i think it speaks to this larger you know climate for indians working abroad whether that's in the west whether that's in the gulf whether it's in places like singapore uh, which is it's becoming in some ways a more constrained environment so i think broadly on india gulf relations uh, you know it is going to bring kind of uh, some strains but it, it's there are also potential opportunities uh, if it means kind of more interest in investing in india so we have a couple more questions but i think they nicely um uh, get incorporated into our second uh, topic and our third topic. Uh, let's go to topic number two, which is the Modi government's economic package. So the government has announced, you know, a total economic package worth around 10% of GDP, although the fiscal costs, according to most economists, it comes in only around 1% of GDP. Uh, India is counting a lot of monetary policy actions in this uh, 10% of GDP figure. Um but over the past five or six days, the government's announced, you know, targeted measures to improve the plight of, you know, small and medium enterprises, farmers, migrants, the poor. It's also announced some structural reforms meant to improve the business climate in India. Um, Sadanand, you know, if you kind of step back and reflect on everything we've heard this past week from the finance minister, how would you rate the overall economic response of the Modi government to date? Well, I think, you know, something that you raise in your question, I think it's sort of important to separate two parts, right? One is how much, how adequate has the response been to this particular crisis? Uh, has the government moved quickly enough to alleviate uh, misery, large-scale misery? And, and I think over there, there is uh, room for criticism that things were slow, there was complacency, um, I don't really have a strong view about uh, whether the whether the government has put in sufficient resources into this or not. But many people have criticized the government for uh, being stingy at a time when it really needs to be opening its wallets. Uh, it needs to be doing much more. It needs to sort of uh, realize that many people have really been pushed to the brink of human existence. And then you have the 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 economic reform program. And many of these are, are extremely welcome measures. Uh, they are things that ideally the government would have done uh, earlier, years ago when things, and they probably would have had uh, more of an impact then. But again, I think, you know, if you're, if you're looking at the, if you're looking out at the economy and assuming, let's just, let's just be optimistic for a moment. Let's just assume that uh, the worst of the coronavirus crisis passes in a, in a few months and uh, the Indian economy opens, maybe we have a vaccine, the economy opens up again, uh, then many of the things that the government has done are, are quite significant. So we, we still haven't seen the fine print, but the agricultural reforms certainly uh, look promising. They've, been, they've received a, a, a cautious but emphatic welcome from Ashok Gulati, who's India's top agricultural economist. This is basically allowing market forces to play a greater role in agriculture, allowing farmers much more freedom in terms of who they can sell produce to, whether they can get into things, whether they can do things like contract farming. So in terms of, you know, the ability to affect the lives of very large numbers of people, uh, that is promising. They have increased FDI in defense from 49% to 74%. That again is something that uh, defense companies, especially foreign defense companies had, had, had long argued for. Uh, that again is uh, promising. They have spoken, they have, again, we haven't seen too many details, but they have spoken about uh, privatizing large swaths of the, of, of, the, of the public sector, which again, I think is, is excellent. Uh, so I think, you know, if you, if you sort of look at uh, some of the, the, the medium term measures, uh, it's possible to say that, you know, these are things that would, could uh, in a longer time frame turn out to be significant. But the problem really has been that as with so much else, um, the government tends to confuse, you know, PR and policy, and therefore they've sort of felt a need to do this in this, you know, strange way of having a press conference every day, and let's talk about something, and let's talk about a different different aspect of this every day over five days. And to me, that sort of seemed, you know, a, a transparent effort really to uh, move the attention of the media from, uh, you know, the reality of uh, coronavirus cases surging. And also to sort of, you know, 
you know, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way, kind of uh, uh, muddle two different things, which is the government's own response to this crisis, how it's dealing with the migrants and so on, uh, with which, you know, which is with what is much uh, a medium term or a long term question, which is what are they doing to reform the economy? So, Sadhanand, we got a question from Vasu while you were talking uh, about reforms that uh, either Delhi or BJP governments might take to sort of use this crisis as an excuse. And I want to go back to something you just said, which is on the agricultural reforms. You know, Harish Damodaran, who's one of India's leading uh, journalists on on the rural sector, uh, who writes for the Indian Express, you know, called these reforms akin to India's 1991 moment for Indian agriculture, you know, freeing up the sector in a way that the earlier reforms, you know, 25, 30 years ago had done for industry and services. You know, you have been commenting, critiquing, watching this government's uh, reform uh, agenda or lack of reform agenda, as it were. Are we seeing some kind of new reformist bent of the kind that you have been calling for for the past six years? I mean, do you see this as potentially a sort of inflection point where the kinds of reforms, whether it's labor, whether it's land, whether it's agriculture, that that you and others have been calling for back in 2013-14, we're now seeing a kind of new glide path? Well, I mean, if you were to sort of remove sort of corona from the picture for a moment, right, let's just say we weren't talking about any of this and the government had suddenly come out and made exactly the announcement it has made, um, I think in, in fairness, uh, many people would be celebrating. Now, on the agricultural reforms specifically, uh, you know, again, uh, we we have to wait for the fine print. This is devilishly complicated. Um, as you know, Milan, this is, an, you know, this is in the end, this is a political economy question. There's a reason why successive governments have not been able to uh, remove this sort of, you know, the monopoly or monopsony of the of the mundies, these 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 yards where farmers are are uh, tend to uh, s- sell their produce. A lot of the states have tended to push back because the, uh, the 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 trader groups that control this trade are very very powerful and well collected politi- connected politically, um, and this is these reforms are being introduced at a moment of crisis. Now it's possible, and I hope that they work out. I hope that the you know the fine print. Uh, matches the rhetoric that we've seen so far. And if that's the case, these truly will turn out to be very significant reforms. On the labor law front, I think we've seen less. We've seen these ordinances by uh, three BJP ruled states, which have essentially suspended most labor laws for three years. Uh, I've less seen sort of, you know, less purpose from the center, but it certainly does seem, if you kind of take all of it together, um, it does seem that at this moment, with their backs to the wall, the government is willing to take tough decisions that have long been recommended by technocrats and experts. Uh, so is this a 1991 moment? At this point, I think that may be a little bit, uh, may, may be an exaggeration. But are we seeing some kind of realization in the government that reform is necessary? Uh, the answer is yes. So, uh, Thunbi, I want to just come back to this issue of labor law, right? Because we've seen an interesting debate break out over this issue. You know, many economists, many of the companies that the three of us interact with here in Washington, foreign investors, have long called for India to relax its very stringent labor laws, you know, which they sort of pinpoint as a key reason India has failed to industrialize and is actually deindustrializing over time. We've now seen many states, or a few states, I should say, including Uttar Pradesh, announce you know, fairly draconian labor law changes through executive ordinance. These still have to be uh, passed by the assembly. And yet many of the same voices that had called for labor reform appear unhappy now. So what gives? You know, wh- Why are they unhappy? I think, you know, the unhappiness comes from the, you know, sledgehammer versus the scalpel approach to this. Um, I think, you know, as, as Sadanan said, as you've acknowledged, the, there's no kind of little doubt that um, labor reform have been, has been called for, that it's needed, uh, that the in fact, the existing labor laws uh, don't really, you know, they, they, they harm businesses, but they also don't kind of protect labor uh, in the way that is necessary. Um, but I think what the what we've seen in terms of objections is, look, you've you've you know you've just kind of hacked at this, or kind of um, um, rather than, uh, so it's not just kind of yes, it's given the these uh, these ordinances will give uh, businesses 
there'll be more kind of flexibility uh, for them in terms of hiring and firing, etc. Um, but they've also taken away a bunch of labor protections. Um, and that you know, that in itself could down the line create, I mean, one, it's bad um, for labor. Um, but second, you know, even if you're a company, um, you don't want a situation where you're going to have uh, labor that's going to get restive uh, down the line. And we've seen this in India where they have been pretty violent incidents uh, that MNCs have faced, for example. So if you're a kind of, you know, foreign investor or even a domestic one for that matter, that's something you know you're gonna watch for. You want actually, you should want um, a you know set of kind of rules that uh, not just uh, uh, you know aren't a major obstacle to you, but also do kind of take care of the stakeholders that are your workers, so they don't kind of there's not this backlash. I think the second aspect of it is doing this. Uh, by ordinance versus kind of legislation. Now that is tough, yes. But you know, if you're a if you're a business, one thing all of us have heard from investors again and again, what do they want? They want certainty. They want kind of ecosystem the the ecosystem to be changed. But the certainty aspect, something that is done by ordinance, you're not actually taking care of a bunch of stakeholders who potentially will be unhappy. But what's to say the next government who comes? Uh, and a lot of these, you know, people said, oh, this is for we're just suspending it for three to four years. Well, what happens afterwards? So then you are kind of creating uncertainty, not just for labor, but for business as well. What's to say the next government doesn't come along and um, decide to kind of overturn uh, things and then you're back to, you know, then it's kind of a retrospective changes problem that we've seen before. Um, you know, I think so people have said, look, there was an industrial relations code kind of, uh, this, in, you know, introduced in the Lok Sabha last uh, fall or in the autumn. And, you know, they just Standing committee provided a report that was being considered. Why not go that route, which might have been more sustainable? So I, I suspect we're going to hear a lot more about this. Um, but I think, you know, there, there, there is reason to both say, yes, it's a good point that they are focusing on it. But is it the way they've gone about it that actually might not solve the problem that we're looking to solve? Can I add just one thing to that, Milan? I think the other, the other thing is that, you know, the, where these laws are eased does matter. Now, there's been, they've been eased most dramatically in Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh. Um, neither of these are really, you know, uh, exactly magnets for foreign investment or centers of industrialization. Um, and we wish them well. But uh, the fact is that the, exactly the same measures, you know, whether you think they're great measures or whether you think they could have been done differently, I agree with uh, Tanvi, a legislative route would have been, you know, much more, in, uh, much more enduring. Um, but the the impact would be much greater if we were seeing this in, we've seen this in Gujarat only with, when it comes to new investment, but that does matter much more. In Gujarat, in Maharashtra, in Tamil Nadu, in Karnataka, you know, the places where foreign investors are al already more inclined to invest. Uh, I think, you know, the idea that you're going to go into Uttar Pradesh with, uh, you know, where this, they've suspended labor laws for three years, I mean, it's going to probably take you you know, 30 to establish your factory. But let's just say that by some miracle you have, you manage to get your factory up and running. It's not going to happen in three years and you don't know what, what you know, what the landscape looks like uh, three years off. So I think that the, 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 the where it's happening also, uh, you know, does, does, does affect the actual practical significance uh, of these laws. Yeah, you know, there's a issue when when Thunby mentioned how you go about this um, that comes up in the context of what they want to do in agrarian reform, right? Uh, what the center has previously done is to try to flog a model law that the center has come up with that the states would adopt. Uh, they did this in part because there's a constitutional question about whether this this the center can inf you know enforce something that um, that the states have to do uh, given um, where this falls in the constitutional schedule. Um, so there could be a challenge on the grounds of the center trying to legislate on something where the states um, uh, actually have jurisdiction. One of the questions that came in is on the Kerala model and whether more states might not be able to follow the Kerala model. I, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have. My own view is, uh, you know, Kerala starts from a very different place uh, in two respects. One, in terms of the state capacity that it, it it's managed to accumulate over time. The second is the way in which state and society uh, work together more or less seamlessly compared to many other states, right? So you have a robust, active civil society that has forged a series of state partnerships over time. 
So there's been this kind of learned behavior, not to mention the fact that Carol has had to deal with things like the Nipah virus and others, so they haven't experienced. But the one thing that I do think still puzzles me, and it's puzzled me actually going back to kind of day one of this government back in 2014, is why there has not been a more effective institutional mechanism to manage this idea of, quote unquote, cooperative federalism, right? I mean, particularly as a former chief minister, I would have thought Modi would have said, whether it's the interstate council, whether it's the setting up of a new body that says, you know, we want to bring the center and states together. And, you know, to give them credit, they've done this in things like GST, right? You've set up a GST council, which by all accounts of people who work inside have actually works pretty well. Um, you know, the Center for Policy Research put out a brief recently saying you should set up something called a NEED Council. I forget what the acronym stood for, N-E-E-D, but it would be part of a resuscitated, rejuvenated interstate council that would deal just with COVID response, financing, fiscal federalism. Because I do think there's a lot of experimentation, right? A lot of variation across states, just like there is in the United States. And I'm not sure right now that there's a platform um, that would facilitate that. I mean, in, it, technically, I guess Niti Aayog would be the place, but most people don't seem to be turning to it. So I don't know if you guys have any thought about this whole federalism question, right? I mean, can you learn good lessons and and maybe unlearn bad lessons based on on what states are doing? So let me. I have two quick point, thoughts. Um, the first is that you know I think Kerala does hold out hope. In the limited way that look, this is a, uh, it's it's a it's a state in a developing country that has shown remarkable outcomes, uh, so far in this fight against the coronavirus, and so obviously it's sort of easier if you're an Indian state or a policymaker sitting in, um, some other part of the country, uh, it seems more plausible, and the lessons that you would probably learn from Kerala are probably more applicable than say the lessons that you're going to learn from, say a place like Italy. Um, that said, you know, the short answer is uh, is no. It, it'll take, it takes a long, long time. And Kerala has built these capacities over many, many decades. And so it's not as though there's some template that can, you know, uh, seamlessly be transferred to uh, Bihar or Bengal or Orissa. I mean, the fact is that uh, Kerala's health infrastructure is far superior to these places. And you're not going to be, you know, you you don't you 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 can't build a car while driving 90 miles on the highway. And I think that's really the situation you're in. Uh, maybe in the long term, states could sort of turn and could could see what they could learn from Kerala. But in the midst of this crisis, uh, I think we're going to end up in a situation where the states that were already well prepared, states like Kerala, are just uh, are simply going to uh, dramatically outperform the states where which over many decades have uh, neglected their uh, healthcare. Um, on the federalism question, Milan, I, I, I don't, I think that, you know, you know, rhetoric about cooperative federalism notwithstanding, this has been the most uh, centralizing government we have uh, seen in decades. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the, the Modi in terms of how he fights elections, it's almost presidential. Uh, a lot of administration, you know, within, forget, it, it has been, you know, concentrated in the prime minister's office. Uh, it's a very powerful prime, prime minister's office. And the states have the GST. I mean, it may have come about with a great degree of you know cooperation when they were when they were discussing it, but the GST again is a fundamentally sort of centralizing instrument. Right. And so you know, effectively, what we're what we what we're seeing is that uh, the Indian system is uh, less federal, and the states have less power today in twenty twenty. Uh, than they did than they did ten years ago. Two quick points here, though. I mean, I I do think this could be an important moment to to kind of start this conversation because, of course, I mean, other states can and should learn from Kerala, even if you can't, um, you know, even if you're not going to be able to replicate it overnight. The question will be: Do it, the do the publics in different states start to see now? They're not looking at you know China or Europe or maybe they shouldn't look at those places, but. They're seeing a successful homegrown example, and do they start asking their own, um, their own kind of government, state governments, and the parties in their states, then why aren't you delivering that kind of healthcare to us? It's about what people demand as well, and you've already seen uh, the prime minister, you know, say, look, 
he's talked about healthcare before, but he's doubling down. So do public start to say, look, this is something that is that we want and we we know it can be done. Um, the bigger challenge is to this kind of, you know, why why not learn more? Why not have these mechanisms? I mean, for one, yes, former chief minister, but one thing we know about policymaking world over, you know, where you stand is kind of where you sit, or how do you say it? Where you sit is where you where stand. Where you sit is where you stand. I always, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, you know, it's, uh, uh, he was very centralizing within Gujarat, and, you know, he's centralizing. At, but I think the other thing is, you know, one thing that's been sad is, how even this moment, which should have brought everybody, kind of focused the mind, and yes, we've seen some coordination. Everybody is still playing politics, which is kind of natural, and you shouldn't expect otherwise. But you know, this thing of even acknowledging that Kerala has been a good model, to acknowledge that would be to give kind of a different political party or a system credit. Um, you know, uh, criticizing. Uh, you know, some people will point to Gujarat as look why there why are there so many cases. Some people will only point to West Bengal for their rising cases. It is very partisan. So I think that's made it very hard um, to actually have a good discussion about what, where you can learn from. So I want to move to foreign policy or last topic. Before I do, Sadhanand, we have two questions which are pretty similar. Um, both have come in on Twitter. Given that the government has dropped the ball, fumbled, mishandled the migrant issue, um, and given that at some point later this year, there are going to be elections uh, in Bihar, notably, um, do you think that this mismanagement is going to have lasting political impacts? Will there be, in other words, a backlash against the BJP um, and, and, and Narendra Modi? So, you know, I hate to give a wishy-washy answer, but um, I think the only thing we can say is that there will be some kind of Will coronavirus reorder politics? Uh, I think in some ways, yes. Uh, I, I don't think we can predict whether this is going to help Modi or hurt Modi. And the simple reason is that, you know, we've seen many incidents in the past uh, where things that have appeared to have, you know, appeared catastrophic to pundits and, 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 and commentators um, have ended up not only not hurting Modi, but have ended up helping him. Say it, Sadhana, you know you uh, want to say uh, nutty uh, <laughs> Everyone knows exactly what I mean. And so I'm, 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 I'm He's not so sure. He's so polite on I mean, video. What's happened to him? Let's, you know, let's face the fact that uh, he's a very popular leader. Many people rally behind the flag in moments of crisis. He has effectively, he and the BJP control large sections of the media. Um, and so, you know, the narrative that, you know, appears that that emerges on the ground uh, in a place like Bihar or in a place like Uttar Pradesh is anyone's guess. And I certainly am not in a position to predict uh, who's going to be hurt and who's going to be helped uh, uh, by, by this. I, I do think, though, that there is a very interesting shift going on. And it's it's analogous to the shift that's happening in the United States. Right. Which is you had Trump every day at the podium, we're going to do this nationwide. The states don't get to decide when to lock down, when to open up. We're going to do it. And now this shift to, well, it's not my issue. It's the governor's, right? You got to talk to Governor Cuomo. You got to talk to the governor of Washington. You got to talk to Gavin Newsom in California. And I think we're going to start to see, we're already seeing a similar uh, passing of the buck from, you know, we had the prime minister who took charge, who took the tough call and the states now can't get their act together to do that. Now, that will work, obviously, in places where the BJP is not in power. Bihar is an interesting one because you have a Nitish Kumar government in which the BJP is a part, right? Or Uttar Pradesh, similarly with Yogi. Um, but, uh, but, but you know, there's always been the speculation about whether they're, fi- they're finally going to be another rupture with Nitish Kumar. Maybe this is <laughs> the, 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 the excuse that they could use, saying, look, he didn't do enough for the Biharis who are stranded in Mumbai or, or Bangalore or Delhi or whatever. So I do think that's a kind of interesting political dance that's that's underway. Um, let me let me segue to our third topic because we have several questions that have come in on foreign policy. Uh, Thunby, let's start uh, with the China angle because as we are speaking at this very moment, there are new tensions which have broken out on the India-China border. These are not new, uh, although we have seen a flare-up uh, in recent weeks. The Indian Army, I think, is quite interesting, uh, has sort of played down these tensions. But I'm wonder wondering whether these kind of new brush fires 
combined with the COVID crisis, right? We've seen a lot of anti-China sentiment build up in India. Do they fundamentally change, in your view, the kind of China calculus in New Delhi? So I think, you know, there's a difference between uh, the calculus within government and amongst the public. And so, I mean, let me just focus on the government. I think both kind of the COVID crisis and kind of consequences, um, but also these kind of boundary incidents that we are seeing, um, these are reflective of kind of two elements in kind of India's China policy, one or kind of imperatives. Um, One kind of element is that both these COVID and kind of bomb boundary issues show that the fundamental, you know, whatever Wuhan spirit, Chennai Connect, um, what they were was kind of, and if, you know, stabilizing the relationship, but the fundamental problems for one have not gone away. So with the boundary, you know, incidents, this is kind of reflective of the fact that these two countries share the largest undemarcated you know, boundary um, in the world, the longest uh, undemarcated boundary in the world. Um, and as kind of India starts to, China for years has kind of built up infrastructure right to the border, has a military presence. As India is starting to upgrade on its side of the border, you're going to hear more about this um, over time. So that hasn't been resolved until they don't under, you know, resolve the underlying problems that hasn't gone away. And the COVID situation, you know, has brought up kind of these brought to the fore longstanding issues that India has, you know, concerns about over-dependence on China, uh, concerns about Chinese influence in the neighborhood, you know, Chinese investments in India, where they're going, is there any oversight? So I think, again, these are, you know, these are fundamental problems that already exist. Having said that, you're also seeing, um, also reflected in these two things, the fact that the governments have a motive, both the motivation and mechanisms to actually try to manage these differences. And so I think on the COVID side, you've seen that India has motivations to keep this relationship stable right now. Perhaps one reason why, um, you know, the Indian army chief very unusually kind of said both sides were showing aggressive behavior. Um, I mean, that might be true, and that is often true, but you usually don't have a unilateral disarmament in terms of the chief of army staff saying, you know, we did it too, while the Chinese are like, nope, it was all you, the Indians. Um, and so I think, you know, very quickly, I think the, 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 the fact that, you know, trying to kind of lower temperatures, you don't want the situation to escalate, but it shows these mechanisms exist to kind of de-escalate, the processes exist. Um, but that the broader kind of issue, and this is the case, the COVID example too, that it shows that India has an incentive to keep, kind of keep this uh, relationship stable. And in the COVID situation, you need, still need equipment. There are certain financing that India is getting from institutions where China holds a vote. Um, and so I think, you know, to keep the supply lines uh, open, to keep the relationship stable. So to me, at least on a government to government level, this is kind of reinforced existing uh, strains. I think the public is a whole different matter. I mean, I've, I've written about this and I think I said this in the previous, I haven't seen this kind of anti-China sentiment in India been mainstream. I haven't seen this kind of attention on issues like Taiwan uh, ever before. Um, And I think we're still, while the Indian government often, you know, figures a way to manage public opinion, over time, it's an interesting question. You know, India has remained, um, as even Sadhana wrote about, kind of fairly immune to these Chinese propaganda efforts. And so over time, you have to wonder kind of what the long-term impact of this is. But I think for now, um, the government is going to continue to try to kind of stay the course on its broader China policy. Thanvi, a lot of questions are coming in on Taiwan, specifically for you. Um, And they want to know whether you think this crisis is going to bring India closer in alignment with, say, the United States when it comes to things like Taiwan's observer status and various international fora. Do you think this could be a trigger uh, that will change the underlying dynamic of India's relations with Taiwan. So Taiwan is much trickier. I mean, this is a good example, right? We'd never get questions on Taiwan before so many. This yeah. is a good uh, reflection of the shift. I think, you know, the, the Taiwan's a tricky issue. It's not like even thinking about, you know, asking for an inquiry of the origins. That's actually an easier issue for India to deal with into the origins of uh, of the coronavirus. Taiwan is a, a, a stickier issue for the Indian government. For one, it recognizes that's a core interest. You know, when China kind of talks about it, that's a core issue for the Chinese. And, you know, anything, so I'm not one of those people, I think, you know, what in, the Indian government 
um, you know, already has various mechanisms of engaging the the, the Taiwanese. There is, uh, you know, a cooperation they don't necessarily talk about. Uh, but then, you know, increasing kind of interest on the economic side, I think you might see an increase in those kind of, I think, you know, even public awareness of Taiwan that will help over time in terms of business, tourism, if we ever start traveling again, those kind of things. But I think for the government, especially a government that also has, um, you know, China has various points of leverage in India. India has points of leverage, uh, too, with the Chinese but for a government who doesn't, you know, has its own issues in terms of, battle, you know, claims to territory, etc., and doesn't want China to either, for example, double, you know, even further kind of uh, 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 double down on the its support of Pakistan and Kashmir, but also, you know, in the past, China has been known to play, uh, to, to very actively intervene in kind of encouraging insurgencies in India's northeast, etc. So, you know, you know, when in terms of those core issues, um, I think the Indian government will be sensitive. Um, India can also use, I mean, sad for the Taiwanese, but India can use the Taiwan card in an opposite way, which you don't just say, look, we want to punish you, so we will do this with Taiwan. It can say, look, China, if you don't back us on this one, right. thing, if you don't back off in at the boundary, um, you know, then I can, or if you do something nice for me, then I will hold back on, you know, at the WHO, etc. It's not a very principled thing, maybe, but that's, you know, pragmatism is usually how these things work. So I do think you'll see on Taiwan, I think you'll see other areas where you'll see India more willing to be aligned. I think the Indian government might do more with Taiwan, uh, in but in ways that will fall below the threshold, I think, of crossing that red line, uh, which I think is more sensitive for the Chinese. And I'm, I'm not sure the Indian government is prepared to do that, uh, no matter how much support it might have amongst the public right now. Savannah, we've got a question that's come in about... Um, uh... FDI, and this was the subject of your Wall Street Journal column from from last week, uh, where you posed the question yourself, you know, in the wake of this pandemic, can India benefit from a global effort to become less dependent on supply chains rooted in China? Um, uh, the questioner asks, you know, whether this is going to come to pass. What's your initial answer to the question that you yourself raised? Uh, the initial answer is, uh, it seems quite unlikely. Um, I give them, you know, high marks for attempting it. I think the aspiration is absolutely correct. Uh, but the bar for this is extremely high. Um, and if you sort of look around the world and you see, I mean, there, there are a couple of things. The, first of all, it's not very clear that many multinationals want to leave China. So for example, if you're a firm like Apple, or if you're a large firm that is interested in the domestic Chinese market, uh, as many American firms are, uh, it does not necessarily make sense to leave China. Now, of the firms that may be thinking of, you know, what they call a plus one strategy, that seems to be the more more, more common uh, more more common refrain. A plus one strategy in uh, low cost, labor intensive manufacturing, things like toys, uh, garments, things like that. Uh, some of that business would, you know, that that's that's what's up for grabs most explicitly. And uh, it seems that so far, a lot of it is heading to uh, Vietnam or to a lesser extent, uh, Thailand uh, and Bangladesh. And a lot, not a lot of it has been coming to India. And that really comes back to, you know, the things that I raise in my column that, uh, you know, things like labor laws, things like land acquisition, red tape, uh, taxation, uh, and now, you know, you can add to that two more things, this rhetoric emanating from the government about self-reliance. Uh, I know that they're sort of taking great pains to say that self-reliance is, you know, it does, does not is not uh, a synonym for protectionism or turning inward. But nonetheless, the word self-reliance sort of does suggest, uh, I would say, something, you know, negative for foreign firms. Um, and secondly, the fact that to a large extent now the world is going to be, at least in the immediate future, uh, reordered according to how countries are seen to be coping with coronavirus. And for now, Vietnam is very clearly one of the standout stars on this. So I think the effort is good. It should be uh, continued. And I think one of the things that they're doing that is quite sensible is to target this in terms of clusters, right? To go go after specific firms and, and go after firms. I mean, what do the textile firm, what, what do the garment firms need? What do the low-end electronics firms need? Uh, what do the toy manufacturers need and so on? But the but this is a very steep hill to climb. 
And anyone who believes that, you know, uh, supply chains are going to suddenly, you know, pick up and move from China to India, particularly at a time when, you know, India has been has has been quite cold to joining trade groupings and you know, it has walked away from the RCEP, uh, I, I'd say is, is sort of, you know, I, I think we're putting uh, hopes ahead of reality if people think that's about to happen. I think there's one more aspect kind of to this, um, which is timing. Um, this is coming at a time where it's not just India talking about self-reliance or kind of, you know, reshow, you know, other countries, whether it's in Europe, whether it's the U.S., are talking about um, reshoring um, some production, but also, uh, you know, deciding either bring, thing, bring things back home, bringing things back closer, as some of the Europeans have said. Um, and the question will be, and one of the things they've listed, for example, both the Europeans and the U.S. have talked about is the pharma. Um, sector. So, you know, the question is, if everybody has some version of go vocal for local, what does this mean for kind of India's? Now, the the um, where you can see is there's only some amount of things that are going to be. So every country is going to say, look, uh, these things we should bring back in some quantities, but we should also diversify to like-minded partners or trusted partners. Now, whether their businesses will go along with what governments are saying is a different matter. Um, but regardless, you could see that. And then, as you know, Sadan saying, then it's that diversification uh, part that India would want. Right. But there is that other aspect, which is a lot of countries are calling for some version of self-reliance, and that will have an impact uh, on kind of India's plans. Uh, which you know, had this happened, had the same set of policies kind of been put in place um, uh, when kind of. Uh, you know, the last time the government really talked about this is how do you take advantage of the U.S.-China trade war, you wouldn't have necessarily have seen that aspect. Nonetheless, a number of countries do consider India one of those like-minded partners. Um, so India does have that advantage. The question will be, you know, for businesses to think that too, that it's it's not just like-minded in the strategic sense, uh, but that it is resilient, it is going to kind of have, uh, uh, you know, give them an ability to not just produce for India, but export, et cetera, et cetera. All right, guys, we only have about four minutes left. So we turn now to the frivolous portion of the conversation. Uh, the best part. Since we're in the social media era, everyone is sharing their lists of things they've been binge watching, reading to help them get through this period of quarantine. I'm wondering if you guys have one or two recommendations, either of things you've been reading or watching for our listeners. They don't have to be India-related, but let me start with you, Sadhanand. What have you been culturally imbibing to get through this moment? So I have not been binge-watching anything, I must sort of <laughs> admit, but I do still have recommendations. Okay. A couple of shows that I would, uh, I would urge people who are into binge-watching to binge-watch. Uh, two of my favorites are these uh, are French shows. One is called Spiral, uh, also known as Engrenage, and it's a, it's an absolutely fantastic police drama. And the other one is called The Bureau, which is also French, and it's a kind of spy thriller that's set partly in France and partly in the Middle East. Uh, they're both really outstanding shows, and if you want to binge watch. Uh, I you you could you you could do worse than that. All right, Thunvi, what about you? I know you must be binging something. I am. I you know I, <laughs> I am a binge watcher. I, you know, weirdly, I and we didn't we didn't coordinate, but I was gonna you know the two things I'm binge watching are uh, the third season of Le Bureau de Legends and uh, the French show. But also, I'm finally watching a show my father's been recommending to me for a while, which is. Uh, Inside Edge, uh, the show on uh, Prime, which is the Indian show on set in kind of IPL or whatever, I can't remember uh. what it's called in the show. Um, for those who don't watch and understand cricket who are watching this, you don't actually have to understand uh, the sport. So it is still, it's a good kind of sports soap opera. Um, and the next thing on my list is a new show, Patalok, which is uh, which I'm hearing a lot of people talk about. So that's on my list to binge watch. All right. So I'll share mine. So I we just finished watching the Hulu series Normal People. This is uh, based on the book of the same name by the Irish author Sally Rooney. It is a 10 episode 
um, beautifully shot, beautifully acted series in which very, very little happens yet uh, and is utterly depressing, but manages to hold your attention from uh, the beginning to the very end. It sounds like Grand Tamasha. <laughs> it sounds like Grand Tamasha. I think it, that one has more serious content than Grand Tamasha. Okay. Uh, the second thing I've been listening to, actually, is the autobiography of Bruce Springsteen. Now, I have... Uh, Obviously, no Bruce Springsteen. I like many of his songs. I remember growing up when Born in the Fourth of July came out. I'm sorry, Born in the USA came out. Um, but I'd never really kind of gone deep. This is an amazing biography. He's a fabulous writer. He narrates the book himself. Um, he talks about everything from his divorce to his mental health to his kind of scrappy upbringing with a very... Uh, uh, harsh father. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, we are almost out of time, but in the final 60 seconds, Sadan, you have a question from both Dunby and me. I made kima the other night for the very first time, and you insisted that proper kima must be made with peas. You have 30 seconds to defend yourself. Yeah, this is why humanity invented blasphemy laws to like prevent people like you from making kima without peas. Peanut butter and jelly cookies and milk, kima and mutter. It's the only way to go. Uh, Thunvi, 15-second rebuttal. Uh, there is one thing I feel very strongly about. This is my point, very assertive point that I previewed that I was going to make. There, peas do not belong in kima. You obviously don't make kima well if you need peas to hide it or to, to hide some flavor to kind of accentuate. Good kima does not require peas. That's the end of that. All right. Uh, Sadan and Dume of AEI, Wall Street Journal, Thunder Madonna, Brookings Institution. Guys, thanks so much. Uh, uh, unbelievably, there are people commenting that they want more live shows in the future. <laughs> so we may just have to do this again. But thanks for joining us. Thanks for our viewers. This will be coming out as a podcast as it normally does uh, tonight. That's early morning uh, IST on Wednesday. Uh, thanks for joining us, all of you out there. And thank you two for, for coming on the show. Thanks, Moon. Thank you. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Megan Maxwell and Rachel Osnos. Tim Martin is our audio engineer and Lauren Dueck is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week.